welcome back to another week of Behind the Lens. We are back live in studio this week. No pre-record. Yay! <laughs> I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, where we go behind the lens and below the line with the movers, the shakers, the film and TV makers, the producers, directors, writers, actors, uh, production designers, uh, costume designers, cinematographers, sound editors, sound mixers, uh, film editors, video editors, authors, composers, you name it, we talk to them. It's been a busy couple of weeks since we were last in Studio Live. Uh, all of my regular listeners, you all know that last week you did have a pre we did a pre-record show because I was spending the day and night with the Hollywood Critics Association Awards. It was a really fantastic evening. CODA was the big winner. But I have to say, for me, other than having my attorney there as my plus one, um, the biggest thrill for me was my friend Fran Kranz winning Best Original Screenplay. I am so proud of Fran. Uh, and... Then yesterday, he was at the Spirit Awards, and he, uh, his film Mass, he and the cast and the casting director were awarded the Robert, the pres very prestigious Robert Altman Award at the Spirit Awards. So I couldn't be happier. Um, I have been on this journey with Fran for many, 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 many years and kept saying, when are you going to direct? When are you going to direct? And he did with Mass. He wrote and directed uh, wrote and directed the heck out of it. Um, a powerful story, an incredible story. And if you haven't seen Mass, please, it's available, it's out there, see it. But so that was my biggest highlight of the Hollywood Critics Association Award. That and Ron Perlman saying, you know, it was the fifth awards, but he said, welcome to the sixth, because it was running very, very, very long. But well worth it with the star-studded talent we had there. Uh, and I got to give a shout out to the founder of the organization, Scott Menzel, uh, for wrangling all of this A-list talent. Javier Bardem, Nicolas Cage. Yes, people, Nicolas Cage was actually there. He was awarded the Acting Achievement Award. Um, Javier Bardem, Nicolas Cage, Guillermo del Toro, Ron Perlman, Lin-Manuel Miranda, Andrew Garfield, the entire cast of CODA. Um, the entire cast of Belfast, including Kenneth Bra Sir Kenneth Branagh, and of course, the the breakout star of the year, Jude Hill, who stole everyone's hearts. Um, I can't wait till next year in the summer. You'll hear me talking about Hollywood Critics Association Television Awards, um, but which I'm going to ignore unless Yellowstone has nominations. I think you all know that by now, but. Enough prattling about awards. We still have Oscars to go at the end of the month. But today, I'm very, very excited. Today's documentary day. And I've got three filmmaker documentarians here with me today. Um, first up, you're going to hear from them in just a minute. Director, editor Maria Peek and producer, cinematographer Stephen Peek talking about one of the most compelling documentaries and one that every parent should see. Sextortion, the hidden pandemic. Um, it's a problem. It's a problem not just in this country, but globally. Uh, with sexual predators uh, and basically turning it into extortion online with your teens and preteens. Uh, so we're going to talk to Maria and Stephen. They're on, on the line right now holding. And then at the midpoint of the show... Andrew Novick is with us to talk about his his documentary directorial debut with John Bonet's Tricycle. Yes, John Bonet Ramsey, John Bonet's Tricycle. Uh, it is quirky, but then it turns gets a very serious note to it with a layman's kind of examination of John Bonet Ramsey's murder. So. Andrew will be joining us at the midpoint of the show, but right now, I'm so excited and thrilled to welcome, fresh off of their Santa Barbara International Film Festival world premiere, Maria Peak and Stephen Peak. Hi, guys. Hi. Thank you so much for having us. I am thrilled. Are you there too, Stephen? 
I am. Good morning. Good morning. This is, wow. This documentary, as I just said in the open, every parent needs to see this documentary. Um, and this truly is, this is sextortion, the hidden pandemic. And it truly is a hidden pandemic. People don't talk about this enough. Uh, the online exploitation of teens and preteens. Uh, I think the one of the first film narrative films to give us a take on this was back in 2010 uh, from David Schwimmer and his film Trust that starred Clive Owen and Liana Liberato as a girl who was online sexual predator. Didn't tell her parents. Went to actually meet the guy. Uh, and it exploded from there. Here, you give us a perspective that I don't think anybody's done before. You actually dive into an actual investigation of one of the most, I would say, one of the most notorious online predators guilty of sex, of sextortion, uh, who is, who was a Navy pilot. Uh, Maria, this is mind blowing. I, I, you, this is not what you would expect as the perpetrator of something like this. Um, were you surprised? Yeah. Were you, were you, the two of you surprised? We were extremely surprised. Uh, we were blown away by the extent of this crime. We were blown away by the taboo of talking on the subject. When we did research for this documentary, we found over 50 films on human trafficking and nothing was addressing sextortion. Yeah. And when Homeland Security Department of Justice opened up this case for us, I had volumes and volumes of court transcripts, victim testimonies, and actually what happened step by step in this case. And I was blown away how smart he was. And he was an all-American boy, you know, 30 years old, Top Gun pilot with a wife and two children. And unfortunately, later we learned that this is not uncommon. This is not an uncommon predator. Yeah. Uh, he is not, you know, an, an anomaly. Um, it can be anyone ages 18 to 80, according to Homeland Security. So that's extremely frightening as parents of preteen and teens. Yeah, I, you have no idea. Um, and this is what I find so, so interesting and so welcoming about this documentary is that you have interviews with Homeland Security, with experts in the field. You take us through court trial. You take us through the investigation process and the lengths. We get to see the lengths that, that officials have to go through to try and get a conviction, to find out who these predators are. But then you also take us through the, the trauma, the courtroom, the testimony with voiceover, and you have some reenactments and quote-unquote court illustrations, and you, you show us both sides, and then let us hear from a survivor. This is the, uh, such a well-rounded package. You show us all sides here. And it's something that that is very, very important in today's world. And unfortunately, as we learn watching the documentary, this situation's only getting worse. Yes, yeah. We kind of hope that, you know, the film would help break down stereotypes. You know, I mean, I think as parents, you know, I'm Marie and myself were parents of 13-year-old and 10-year-old girls. And so we realized that we're the own you know, we are the target demographic of our own movie. And so often parents think, oh, this couldn't happen to my kids. It's only going to, you know, this is a crime that happens on the fringes of society. It's something that happens to foster kids or runaways. And, and that's just not the case. It's happening across the socioeconomic spectrum. It's happening all the time. The numbers are simply staggering. And then we also kind of have this stereotype of who the perpetrator is. And we think of that kind of creepy guy that still lives in yeah. his mom's basement. And that's who we think it is. But no, this guy was one of the top air-to-air combat guys <laughs> in the U.S. Navy. And he just was living a secret life. And so, 
we wanted to kind of help parents and teens to understand this is happening to everybody. The numbers are skyrocketing, and we wanted this film to help bring awareness to it. Well, it certainly does bring awareness. And you know, w- another aspect of this is when we're finding out about the perpetrator, a wife and two kids, and it's like it, the first thing you think of is, oh, my God, what is he doing to his own kids? You know, if this is right. if this is what he is doing online to other children uh and if you're 13 14 15 yeah you're still a child um but it it's just mortifying the mind reels if you're going to do this quote unquote anonymously um online what are you doing to your own children uh you just Mm -hmm. open so you raise so many questions that beg for answers, and you give us so many answers here. Uh, you know, I'm curious, what led the two of you? This is not a mainstream to- mainstream topic that you would get up at breakfast one day and say, I think I want to do a true crime expose on <laughs> sextortion and sexploitation on the Internet of kids. Where did the idea yeah. for this come from? We met a lady in Southern California, Opal Singleton, who has a charity called Million Kids, Keeping Kids Safe Online from Predators. And she wrote a few books on sextortion and sent them to us in the beginning of 2020. We began reading and doing research, and we realized how much uh, sextortion is connected to human trafficking, but it actually leads to a number of other crimes Mm -hmm. and how prevalent it is. I would equate it to the Me Too movement in children online. Actually, um, nobody is talking about it, but it's, um, it is so prevalent, it's mind-blowing. Um, we've been long-time supporters of different charities that fight human trafficking mm-hmm. and never felt like we could personally contribute except for money. And this was our way of contributing um, to fighting this crime. Um, COVID happened at the beginning of 2020 in the spring, and so we literally realized all these children are going to go online, and this crime will just get worse, and we have to do something about it. So from shock, it went, it led to activism, and we actually began production in the summer of 2020 on this time. Well, you didn't have anything else to do. You're sitting at home on lockdown. So I can't think of a, <laughs> I can't think of a better project for you to dive into than this because as you said you know on lockdown and the kids are at home what are they going to do they're not going to be in school they're actually now going to be at home on their phones even more uh than normal so i can imagine yeah, and the numbers the numbers skyrocketed once you know covid started there was a 98 percent increase in oh extortion God. cases from 2019 to 2020 you know, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children is one of our big partners in this film. And, and when they started sharing with us the numbers, I mean, you know, two years ago, I didn't even know sextortion was a thing. But in 2019, there were 16 million reports into the cyber tip line. 2020, it jumps to 21 million. Oh, my God. And then 2021, it jumps to 29 million. So it's just like it's insane. And so parents don't want their kids to go through this. And kids don't want to be exploited, but nobody knows about it. So we want this film to help kind of break that silence because the perpetrators are using silence to their advantage. Sure. And so if we can start a conversation with parents and teens and use the film as an entry into that. Cause like you said, it's not an easy subject to, to talk about. No. So we want to break that taboo and say, this is something we have to talk about to keep our kids safe. Now you have so many authorities. You've got, um, you know, prosecutors in here. You have survivors in here. You have the mother of one girl who took her own life because mm-hmm. of this. Um, and how did you go about developing a through line and gaining access, you know, to have a federal court file unsealed and give you the kind of access that you had to have had to put this documentary together? That is a feat. That is a feat unto itself. So I'm curious what your process was. How did you go about developing the through line, breaking this down? Not just having talking heads, 
um, lecturing because you know that never gets anybody anywhere. Um, right. <laughs> the more you lecture, the less people listen. So walk me through your process in developing a, a, a narrative, a documentary narrative, and bringing it to life. Sure. We First, we thought we were going to be following an anti-human trafficking uh, task force in Southern California, and then COVID happened, and we realized we have to stay close to D.C. We have to stay on the East Coast due to travel restrictions, and we were looking for a case that would be ideal case to describe this crime. One of our friends in law enforcement told us about this case, and when we started pursuing it, we realized there were three other production companies that wanted to make this film and were never given permission. So given our track records, we had a few films on streamers that did extremely well. We started pursuing and filling this case. And um, when Homeland Security and Department of Justice saw our track record and they saw what we are trying to do with this film, they did until the case for us. And then we went step at a time. You know, we would interview one prosecutor and they would refer us to the forensics examiner. And the forensics examiner refers to the next person. Because of COVID, we also had to shut down entire buildings um, to film this film. So mm-hmm. we would do one interview in a completely closed down building in wow. K95 masks with skeletal crew. We were, we were both members of the Producers Guild of America, so we had to abide by every single rule. Mm-hmm. Pre-vaccination was extremely tough and extremely slow. But it actually gave us time to kind of put the rough cuts together and decide on the next step. So this film was literally one foot in front of the other and then the next foot in front of that foot. Um, then we had to find a courtroom sketch artist who would take the photograph and any, and then we would draw out the scenes and then we would animate them and use voiceover actors because we, at that point we could not film with actors. Mm-hmm. So we had to get creative and kind of learn filmmaking again from a completely different perspective. There is no economy of scale in this film. You could not put several interviews all in one day. That just was not <laughs> uh, possible for us. But um, it kind of gave us time to think through our next steps. And, and that's why uh, we were able to first tell the story of the case and then find a survivor who would come on camera and tell the story from her perspective, which also led to Amanda Todd's story and Canadian scene. She's extremely well-known in Canada um, for cyberbullying, but she's not well-known as a victim of sextortion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the way you have constructed this, the through line is spectacular. The editing process, Maria, is your editing is just so spot on in with the pacing thank you. thank you with pacing with you know giving us a setup from uh, you know department of homeland security uh and then bouncing to something else and you build and you build and you give us questions and you give us and then you give us answers so we're not left wondering as we're going through the film okay what happened what happened no we're seeing this and I have to say, some of the most interesting uh, things that you have in this film are is the footage or the recreation or images of how this is investigated. You know, going online, <laughs> looking at, you know, getting and finding and digging for IP addresses and then seeing the, the trail and everything that's then linked to that. That is fascinating and the work that these investigators do is just unfathomable. It, it, I'm in awe because this absolutely we you let us see, and you let us see the emotional toll it takes on them that they realize this is someone's child. This is happening to, and it with everybody you can just see it on their faces, hear it in the voices that this could be my child, and it. I love how you brought that to light to really reach out and touch the nerve and the heart of parents everywhere. Just so exceedingly well done with that editing, Maria. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for that. And they're definitely my personal heroes. I told Aaron Burke from um, C3 Homeland Security Investigations, the chief um, of this investigations in D.C., that I want to be her when I grow up. 
because uh, we only dealt with the subject for two years. Um, these people are fighting this crime every day. Some yeah. of them are 15, 20 years on the job, and the emotional toll it takes on them is unbelievable. And the fact that they keep going is also incredible. One of the quotes that completely cuts to the heart of this is not in the film, but um, Steve Anders from Southern ICAC, Internet Crimes Against Children, told me, I have three boys, and I would rather take this every day than the next child having to take this. He said, I will take the emotional toll, the abuse, the heaviness of these images, and having to deal with the subject every day to prevent any child from having to take this. And he said, and that's, that's my goal in life. I want to stand between them and the predators. I want to protect them. Well, and something else that you do here, you, you split this up. So we're looking at anger and grief. And, you know, in the grief stage, in the survivor stage, you bring in, I have to, I was riveted watching and listening to your now adult survivor identified with initials. And that's so important because minors are involved. Everybody, it's, they're identified, victims are identified with initials. Uh, as... So we get her SM. She is a, she is such a ray of light. You would never know she had endured anything like this. But when you listen to her talk about taking her laptop and going to the train tracks and putting it there and letting a train run it over as her catharsis and way to free herself, that is one of the most empowering moments of the film um yes it, it you know was it difficult to get her to want to speak on film actually no uh, surprisingly um this this girl wanted to take their power back so in the case of sm and amanda todd there was a international extortion ring with multiple multiple victims and when Homeland Security realized what we are doing, they actually helped us find the victims of this crime, and all of them wanted to come on camera. So it was a personal struggle for me uh, to choose who uh, who is wow. going to represent them. And as when I spoke to Asam, I knew this was my person because she's so positive. She's making something of herself. Um, she chose a profession that is actually helpful to people and helping people, and that's her mission in life is help people with their healing and restoration, whatever trauma they've been through. She's very positive. She's an incredible human being and inspiring. She actually had to take high school exams on paper because once she smashed her laptop, <laughs> she refused to go back online for years and years and wow. years. And her high school accommodated her exit exams. They were given to her on paper when everybody else had to take, take them on the laptop. But she was able to survive and thrive. And now she's using her voice to speak against this crime. And she was excited to be in the film. Well, and, and her story, I think, it, it's so telling of so many of the victims of sextortion is how her body image, her self-esteem, um, you know, that stemmed from bullying at school. And it's just, we really get a sense of the daisy chain that happens. It's, you know, it starts with one thing and then it's something else and then it's something else. And it's you're craving and you're looking for some some way to belong. And all of a sudden here it, it's you're chatting online and it may be anonymous, but it makes you feel good. But to actually hear her talk about that chain of events that led her online that led her to connecting online with this perpetrator and then when she became proactive and stood up for herself how she reacted uh and to in order to move on that's something that i think a lot of people forget people talk about bullying out there they don't realize the extent the toll and the path that it can lead and you really show us that Mm -hmm. Yes, definitely. And the same with Amanda Todd. Unfortunately, for one little misstep, um, she had to pay dearly and she had to pay with her life ultimately. And that's why um, I would implore parents who are listening to this or anyone who's listening to this, aunts and uncles, 
significant others and the trusted adults in the life of the kids. Uh, you cannot be judgmental when a child uh, makes one small mistake online because they're coming of age, uh, they're wanting to be older than they are, and they're looking for their identity. Um, I think we need to accept them and love them because, uh, as Opal says in the film, um, grooming is often a crime of psychology based on our need and want to be loved. So as parents, my you know personal challenge to myself is love your children, be there for them, and don't judge them if they make you know one small mistake online because they don't understand completely what that mistake could lead sure. to. Uh, so I think we need to be uh, people that they, they can talk to, people they can trust, and uh, that they can turn to if something like this happens to them, if we have that conversation open, if we have the taboo removed from the subject. Um, I think we can make a lot of, re- we can prevent this crime from happening. Mm-hmm. You know, Stephen, I'm curious, because you're also the cinematographer, so you are there actually filming uh, some of these interviews, as a parent and a filmmaker, how do you find, how do you blend the two? Because uh, as you're uh, as you're there with a camera, you may be behind a camera, but you're hearing all of this. You're seeing these immediate reactions from your interview subjects. Is how much of a challenge is that for you? Yeah, especially coming off of what we were just talking about with our interview with SM, towards the end of that interview, when you see her crying on camera, uh, Maria, you know, essentially calls cut, and then all of us uh, go and find some tissues because there's not a dry eye in the room. Um, You know, this is very personal film for us. And, you know, Maria talked a little bit about how many challenges we had, you know, when we greenlit this film in the spring of 2020 and thought, what could possibly go wrong? And then I kind of likened it to pushing a boulder up a mountain for 18 months nonstop. But as a parent of two girls uh, that are in the highest risk age that there is, that 10 to 15-year-old range, we... I had to keep the why in front of me the entire time. You know, this was such a personal film for us as parents. And we knew that there was no obstacle that we couldn't overcome if we kept going back to the why, because we don't want it to happen to our kids. If it's not happening to our kids, the numbers and the statistics show that it's probably happening to one of their friends, Mm -hmm. somebody somehow down the road. And if we can create a film that enables our kids and their friends and this next generation to be leaders in this space, to be informed and to be that trusted person, if it does happen to one of their friends. So all those things kind of kept us going. So it was very much both and filmmaker and parent. You know, there was there wasn't too much of a separation on this one because Mm -hmm. it was too personal, too important. And like I said earlier, I was the target demographic of my own movie. Mm. Well, and something I have to commend you on, Stephen, is what you have shot, your interviews. And granted, some of the distance that you have between camera and subject um, is due to COVID protocols that you had to adhere to. But also, it's almost like a buffer of objectivity so that nothing the camera is not moving in on a zoom not intensifying anything you have you know these nice clean you know mid to wider shots and you feel the power of just one person speaking in this room and it's unfettered it's clean and I love how you did this and you didn't go move in on all these zooms that I know some filmmakers probably would have done. Um, you're letting the story, the words say everything. You didn't need to enhance that. Thank you for saying that. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's an amazing insight. And, and we do try to let the story speak for itself. And I think it did. And we didn't have to add anything to that. We obviously, I tried to bring, you know, the art of cinema to our dots. And, I, and I'm proud of the way this looks and the way it's photographed. And we don't want there to ever be a barrier to the message. 
You know, mm-hmm. sometimes poor filmmaking can actually be a distraction <laughs> um, yes. to the story that you're trying to tell. And so I always want to use every amount of craft that I can pull together to tell the story well. Um, but like you said, we didn't have to enhance it. The story was so powerful on its own. And Maria is such a brilliant storyteller. Uh, I was just trying to make sure that the filmmaking didn't detract from that. Yeah, no, you both did an excellent job with that, that you present everything very objectively. You're not inserting your own philosophies into this through camera or through anything else. You're letting the story tell the story. You're letting those words out of a court transcript tell the story. You're letting SM tell her story. Um, or Amanda Doan's mom. I mean, it just... You you let this be as it should be, unfettered, objective, clean, and everybody, you know, open. Everybody can take from it what they will. Um, just mm-hmm. so so well done, both of you. So well done. Welcome. Thank um, you for your thank time. You. Thank you. You know, um, before I let you go. Um, since it's documentary day and I'm going to have another, another documentarian on here in a second. <laughs> um, I've got to ask you, how was the film received world premiere Santa Barbara international film festival? How was it received by the audience? Uh, we were overwhelmed by the reception, the amount of questions and positive feedback was incredible. Um, Claudia did the panel Q&A afterwards, and the questions were really well put together, and we had a lot more conversations even after the screening was over. Uh, yesterday we had another screening, and the, con- the conversation is just never-ending. It raises so many questions, and that's what we hope to do. Art is supposed to, you know, raise questions yeah. and start conversations, and we are very excited how well it was received. I'm going to be on Documentary Activist Panel on March 10th back here in Santa Barbara to discuss the film further with Claudia. Now, do we have, do we have, has a distributor bought it yet? Do we have a release date? No, we don't yet. We, we have some, <laughs> some interest and we're starting to kind of work through that process now as we're uh, coming out of Santa Barbara. That's going to be top of mind for us. Uh, we want to be really careful to make sure that we yes. have the right uh, distributor because obviously we feel so strongly about the message. We yeah. want to make sure that it's handled with the care that it deserves. Um, so we're definitely going to be looking for that. And then hopefully, you know, we've had some great luck with, you know, SVOD uh, on, you know, streamers in the past. And so we're hoping to find the right streamer because we feel that as the film talks about, it's a global pandemic. It's a yeah. global problem. And so we want the these audiences across the world to see this film well i thank the two of you for making this documentary um i can't wait to see what you give us next but i really want to see where this film goes and hopefully once you get distribution it's coming out in the world you'll come back on the show we can talk more about it definitely definitely oh maria Stephen, thank you so so much so right now, people can just, where can they uh, get information for upcoming festivals or anything like that? Yeah, so we have a website, sextortionfilm.com. That's probably the best place. We're also developing some resources with the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children and Homeland Security because we want to have some small cutdowns based on the sure. film that they're going to put into their NetSmarts program and is going to be available for educators uh, going into schools across the country, uh, hopefully by this summer. So we're super excited about that. So the film can live in its full 85-minute version, but we're also going to have some educational resources to go along with it for law enforcement and schools. Um, and so those resources and updates will all be available at sextortionfilm.com. Oh, guys, thank you so much. And I can't wait until you, I have you back on the show to talk more about this. Thank you, Maria and Stephen. Thank you so much for having us. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. And that was Maria Peek and Stephen Peek talking about sextortion, the hidden pandemic. And now we're going to shift gears from sextortion to 
I don't know. This, this, in some respects, <laughs> we could be tied in here. Andrew Novak, are you here to talk about John Bonet's tricycle? I am. How are you doing? I am fine. I am so excited to talk to you. Uh, I love your documentary. You did oh, a thanks. first time do- film for you. You did yeah. a heck of a job. Uh, uh, awesome. I appreciate that. Oh, my God. You grabbed me right at the beginning with your animated opening titles and then go right into a montage of your collectibles. Uh, and I have to tell you, I do not think you were a hoarder. If you were a hoarder, you would not treat your collectibles with such care. <laughs> so, <Okay>, good. <laughs> yeah, you do not qualify for one of my favorite reality shows, Hoarders. So, um, this is, I had no clue what to expect here. It's like John Bonet's tricycle. Is this some kind of wacko who is obsessed with Jean Bonet Ramsey or her tricycle? And then <laughs> you hear the, just the name of the film, and it makes you wonder. But then the way you have developed this film, Andrew, is so well done. You give us your background. We get to see these beautiful montages, not only of your collection, some of your collection, but your art exhibits that you've done. Uh, we learn about who you are. And your philosophy about all of these collectibles as being part of culture, pop culture. And your reverence for them really comes across. You do value the stories of all of these items that you have. And I found that so amazing. So amazing. That's awesome. Yeah, I I feel like I'm trying to save things from getting destroyed or forgotten you know hey you know it's like i think about things i've gotten thrown away over the years i'm like god no i wish i had that now it would be (laughs) so significant um but then it becomes where do you put it all um but (laughs) this is a really interesting tale because you give us your whole background and we learn about, you know, you're a musician, you're creative, you're an artist, you're a photographer. Uh, you are just one of the most creative forces I've ever seen. Um, but then you take that creativity and your curiosity about the Jean Benet Ramsey murder, which is still unsolved uh, for all intents and purposes. Everybody has their theories. <laughs> yep. Um, I think most people align with the same theories. But you then, using this tricycle as an entree, you really give us a layman's look back into the murder, into the investigation, into the shenanigans that were going on with press, police, and D.A., um, it's actually, it's a very concise timeline, Andrew, that yeah, I we squeezed a lot in. Wow. You know, how did you decide you wanted to do a documentary about with this tricycle as the, the eventual focal point of the documentary? Because that gives, that opens us up to so much commentary on society, on the media, on law enforcement, uh, on pop culture itself. So talk me through your reasoning and how you came up with this idea. Yeah, you know, I, I collect so many different things, and they're all very interesting to me. But that tricycle has interest to a really wide audience, I yeah. think, as opposed to some random thing from my collections. And I had it for all those years, and I... Uh, I didn't really talk about it too much because it was, you know, still this unsolved case or whatever. But as it was coming up on like the 20th and now like 25th anniversary of the, of the murder, uh, I just thought it would be interesting to bring that story, you know, back. And, um, I, I originally the idea was just to have, uh, to take this, the tricycle and these candy canes that were from the yard 
that you see in every picture. Everybody take, knows the candy canes. Yeah, exactly. And just to take those things to psychics, just to see what psychics would say. And, like, I'm, I'm very much a skeptic, but I thought, you know, if, if a psychic could get anything from an object, these are some pretty interesting objects. But as we started making the film, there was just so much more to tell. You know, we wanted to, to kind of retell some of the details of the case. And there's so many weird things about the case that are interesting, just the, the weird characters and everything. Yeah. So these objects really represent the beginning of a much bigger story. And just also to talk about, you know, people hold objects with such um, reverence, whether it's like a, a personal story or someone famous had it or some, you know, and someone autographed something that made it more personally valuable. And I'm not super into, um, you know, buying and selling of collectible type things. Mm -hmm. You know, I've, I've never really sold anything. <laughs> so I'm not really collecting things for their value, but more their kind of uh, intrinsic or ephemeral value. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the best reason to collect something personally. Um, but, you know, the intrinsic value, does it speak to you? What what story does it tell that you can relate to or that you can pass on? Uh, and you do that here so well. Yeah, imagine like when people started collecting Beanie Babies, you know. <laughs> they thought they were going to be worth a lot of money. And so that was kind of a failure. And just like anything like that, the market can change, right? So if you don't get out at the right time, you lost all this value. But if you don't, you're not ascribing monetary value to things, you, you're uh, kind of immune to that um, to that problem because you're collecting things for a different reason. Well, you know, I, I got about 20 beanie, beanie Babies. If you want them, you can have them. I've also, <laughs> I've also got about 50 collectible Bradford Exchange Gone with the Wind plates. So, oh, you, wow. so you know, um, all from different series, mind you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but and you and that's just it. You when you collect something, you don't do it intending to you know to sell or trade, and you know, it's the history or uh, you know significant personal significance to you. Or in the case of Beanie Babies, they just look cute. So, yeah. um, but uh, you know, how did you decide? Because the way that you have done this, it's like once you decided you're going to, to, you know, explore this tricycle and bring in psychics. And I have to tell you, the psychometry, I think that that segment is just great. You picked very different psychics. Okay, a couple I, I truly laughed at watching. Um, <laughs> yeah. It was impossible. It's impossible not to. I have to be honest, Andrew. And I'm sure you, you can imagine which ones they might be. Yeah. Uh, but then what I really love that you did is you brought in the investigators, the paranormal investigators, who, you know, James Randi had hired them. And I knew James Randi. Oh, wow. Um, and there was a documentary about him years ago, and I interviewed him, and then... He took a shine to me, and after the press day ended, we sat there talking for another hour plus. Oh, that's awesome. And then he reached out to me again a couple times, you know, over the years. Um, so the fact you had the investigators who were hired for his paranormal challenge, because he was the king of debunking. Um, yeah. That, to me, just heightened the credibility so much more. I, I applaud you for doing that. Um, I, I loved that you did that with this documentary, Andrew. That's awesome. And really, I mean, it was like just a, a movie to, to debunk. Like if you had some object and you took it to a psychic and you proved that they were wrong or whatever, that's, that's very short. You know, that's yeah. not that fun. This ended up being a much bigger story. And also, when you know, when you make a documentary, I'm sure you talk to a million filmmakers they really choose the narrative right you, mm -hmm. you pick the arc you talk you, you show what you want to show and you could just like on a debate team you know you can defend either side whichever whoever you want to pick but what we did with the psychics is we really wanted to show the gambit we yep. have you know multiple multiple psychics when they were right or they seemed right we've showed that when they were grossly wrong we showed that like we didn't want to <laughs> You know, we could have easily picked footage that made them all look 
totally wrong all the time or just pick the things that they got right or something. So we really wanted to show that, you know, and it was really interesting, even if they got something wrong, but more than one psychic said the same thing. That was also interesting. Yes. It kind of gets to the bottom of how they how they do the readings and how they perceive, you know, the room and things like that. Or, you know, when you finally disclose to them, because they do this blind, you know, it's, it's quote unquote a blind taste test. And yeah. they don't know where these items are from. And I love that the candy canes, they still have, you know, the barcode stickers on them at the bottom. So, uh, you know, for all they knew, you could have just gone, run into Target and picked them up uh, yeah. and brought them in. So the fact that it was a blind test, and then when you reveal to them, and one, it's like the one's face, it just kind of sunk because it's like everything that she had just said belied, <laughs> uh, you know, the horror of, you know, of Jean Benet's murder, of even even her life as a little beauty queen. Because it, uh, to me, that is a horror, to dress a, a child of that age and make her look 40 years old. Uh, yeah, the exploitation in that. Yes, yes. Um, so, uh, you know, you could see it's like, oh, I screwed up. <laughs> um. So, <laughs> well, and that stuff with the sock monkey was really. Oh um, God. <laughs> that that was really just to kind of warm them up to the having a camera in the room during their reading and just have something, you know, a, an insignificant object. And I wasn't planning on using that footage. It was just something to like. I, I didn't just walk in the room with this tricycle. You know, I had these other objects. But the sock monkey stuff was so interesting. I I I, I brought it in because it also showed something about the credibility, um, you know, and the things that they got right or wrong or, you know, that they agreed on. And it, it just was very interesting, even though it had nothing to do with the tricycle. No, but, it but had to do with the whole the whole uh, psychic uh, part of the story. Well, it sets the stage and it lets uh, and, it, you know, perks up the audience so that, all right, let's see where this is going to go. And the fact that they're saying, oh, yes, I see somebody. Yes, they, they had the, the little sock monkey curled up under their chin and they were holding it. Well, what else do you do with a sock monkey? <laughs> yeah, exactly. They're so cute. You're going to hug it. <laughs> yeah, I have a sock monkey. Yeah. That's it, ancient. But, you know, I, I just love that, that you started with that premise um, as a control, so to speak. And then from there, you moved into the, into the candy canes. And from there, then you went into the tricycle. Um, very well structured the way you did that. You know, how difficult was the editing process for you to put this together? Because you do have a very strong through line in this documentary with the way you've structured it. Yeah, I, I would say it was pretty challenging. I had a really good editor I was working with, and um, not uh, not uh, not a lot of experience, like on feature films. But he really had a lot of great ideas and really uh, helped you know tell the story in the right order. And um, also, you know, there's there's a lot of subtleties that he put in too, like he. he we're talking about the tricycle, but if someone says something negative, the tricycle leaves the screen. Mm -hmm. like, we really wanted to personify the tricycle as this positive thing. You know, it was a part of her, the happier part of her life. And there's a couple times in the movie where it's it's rolling by itself. You know, and so we we gave it this this uh, it's its own character in the film, and we didn't want it to be this kind of evil thing. We really just wanted it to be the kind of the, the vehicle to tell the story, if you will. Mm -hmm. and, and I love how you did that. And I did notice that when something negative was said, the tricycle wouldn't be on the screen. But adding in all those segments of the tricycle, you know, going down the sidewalk on its own, going down the street. Um, I mean, that and it gives you a kind of a, a creepy kind of vibe. It's like, ooh, you know, is her spirit peddling this? It really sends the mind when you set it up like that. And then in between, you actually have a little actress 
dressed up in the blonde wig and the cowboy hat, one of the most, and the pink frilly dress, one of the most famous images of Jean Benet. Uh, yeah. So you really, you bring that, you really set that up so well for us to keep our mind, you know, focused. Yeah, and I didn't want to include any footage of her pageant things or right. you know we the only pictures that we show of of John Bonet is pictures from the tabloids yeah. and things because it was like all of that stuff you know every TV show and you see has all of they always just show this footage every newscast Same every stuff. expose we've seen it a million times and that's I feel like that's very exploitative it's exploitative that they were doing those pageants, and then it was exploitative for the news. You just keep showing them over and over. So I thought, I thought having a kid riding the trike, although I, I, I agree that it was eerie, and that was kind of part of it. It was like this kind of ghost, ghost-like thing. Um, but it was, it was, it was meant to show like the, the kind of the fun and the spirit yeah. of of John Bonet. Yeah, of a little kid. Um, who would have a tri- a little pink tricycle with streamers on the handlebars. And, you know, I did find it, it, you have that great moment in there where you find your old issues of the globe uh, going back to 1996, and you actually find some pictures of the tricycle just discarded on the side of the family house. Yeah, that was kind of a, that was a big relief because... <laughs> All these years, like, everyone always would ask, like, where'd you get this? How'd you get this? And I didn't really want to say. Um, but people, I think, have always been skeptical as to whether, you know, did I just make this whole thing up or whatever. So it was kind of cool to re- that that got revealed what, during the course of the filming. It was it couldn't have worked out better. Now, you filmed this, what, back in 2016, 2018, right around yeah, then? Yeah, we started in 2016 or so, um, and we, we did a short film. And it was basically just the the psychics part, mm-hmm. um, and submitted that to a film festival because one of the goals for a feature film was to um, the sh- to show the pop culture aspect of the yes. tricycle. And so, having a short film and bringing it on the red carpet, you know, you see all this this fanfare around the tricycle, and we were on the front cover of the newspaper of the color photo. You know, that was all part of the story about this this making this tricycle kind of famous. And the tricycle became the grapefruit on TV. People saw this tricycle they've never seen before, and now they know it. Mm-hmm. And as you know from your own, from all of your years of collecting, that's all it takes. That's all it takes, and it gets solidified into the zeitgeist. Yeah, exactly. And we really, we really get to see that. Uh, you know, how long? So you had the short film. What was your process like after that to turn it into the feature? Then, how much more footage did you and your and your cinematographer Robert uh, Martori? Um, how much more did you guys have to go find and get? We did much, much, much more because the the short was really just um, just kind of introducing me briefly introducing the trike and the um, going through the psychics. But so much was left unsaid. So, like, all of the interviews, um, aside from the original interview that I did, which with the woman, you know, interviewing me, mm-hmm. um, like, everything else was was filmed after the short because we really just had a very, you know, just had the, a little story to tell. Um, but, you know, we traveled to Atlanta um, or Marietta, Georgia, and uh, it was kind of fun, like, put, you know, taking the trike on a plane and, like, taking it apart, which was, <laughs> I, I wondered if people got that, you know, like, I was taking it apart just to get it in a smaller box so I could check it as luggage, you know, put it on the plane. Yeah, I, I watched you taking it apart, you're filming that, and then, all, okay, we're, then I see this box on the baggage carousel in the airport, and I'm like, okay, that's what he did. <laughs> um... You know, smart thinking there. You don't want to pay a freight rate. Let's get it small enough to, <laughs> to be baggage. Yeah. Um, and it just ends up being, those are just, those are technical things. I was like, well, I got to put it in a smaller box. But that's like, well, we should film it if we're taking it apart. And then, <laughs> so then it's like, oh, that ends up being a really fun sequence. And the music is really great. Um, uh, the guy, Adam Stone, who did all the original music for the film, just did such a great job. And 
it's just really fun to put together. The music really is fun, and it keeps the film, it keeps a fun, light tone to the film. Where Because you very easily, as you're piecing together and you're talking about the various elements uh, in Jean Benet's life, especially, you know, the, like the Santa Claus with the glitter and... Okay, he wants the glitter mixed with his ashes when he dies. Um, <laughs> you know, plus all the usual commentary about Patsy and and then Dad and then her brother. Um, it can get very dark, but you kept you stayed away from that while still imparting a lot of information, filling in the timeline, and letting people think for themselves. Yeah, let them kind of figure it out slowly. We're not trying to feed them an opinion. We're trying to just show them all these different angles. Yeah. And that's kind of what's neat about pop culture itself. It's every, Everyone can get something kind of different out of it. Mm-hmm. You know, you watch a commercial during the Super Bowl because it's, you know, they, you know they paid millions of dollars and you want to see. And, like, some people hate them, some people love them. But, like, we all watch it, so we can all discuss it later, you know. So I think pop culture is just a powerful um you know, facet of something to communicate with people about and and espouse ideas and opinions. Now, do you find all these years later, since Jean Benet's murder was December 26th of 1996, do you find there was still an appetite for her story? Oh, I think it's huge. I mean, especially now with all of the, there's all these podcasts, um, you know, like murder podcasts and, um, you know, My Favorite Murder and all these um, TV shows uh, about unsolved crimes and specifically about John Bonet. Like, you, you know, like My Favorite Murder podcast has had multiple episodes about John Bonet Ramsey. So it's still it's still in the vernacular of of the, the crime world. And so many people um, you know, know about it. I screened the film in Japan um, in wow. Tokyo and Osaka. And people there, you know, even there you know, knew somewhat of the story. Although I asked people, you know, do you know the story? Did you, did you hear about this back then? And they all thought that, um, they're, yeah, the parents did it. Right. And I was <laughs> like, well, the, no one's ever been arrested, so. <laughs> but it was a worldwide story. So people, and it was so kind of bizarre and noteworthy that I think a lot of people remember it. So, um, yeah, I think it's still in the, the, the front of people's minds. Wow. You know, now I have to ask you something that came out in this documentary with your friend and the professor and uh, the professor who was talking about you. And we're getting a background. You know, you were in bands, Scramblehead, Warlock Pinchers, but you were an expert witness at a trial for Marshmallow Peeps. I have a very to, interesting life. <laughs> I have to hear how do you become an expert witness at a trial for Marshmallow Peeps? Yeah, there's two things. How do you become a witness and why would they need a witness? <laughs> Who's suing over Marshmallow Peeps? Yeah. Uh so I I I've always loved Peeps and I I don't eat them really all the time, but you know, one time a year I eat Peeps and there was in the early 90s we were having a barbecue on Easter and I was at the grocery store shopping around for stuff for the barbecue and I love s'mores and I was like oh I'll get peeps and we'll make s'mores out of them so uh that ended up being I was like oh wow this is really cool and fun and then we ended up like setting the peeps up in little scenes you know just as as we were eating our s'mores and but that's the what next you have year, to do pardon that's what you have to do with peeps yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and like nowadays, there's so many different ones. There's ghosts and pumpkins, yeah, and, um, cats and gingerbread man. And so every year for this barbecue, we would have, um, you know, more and more kinds of peeps, and people would make little dioramas, <laughs> and we started giving out prizes. <laughs> and so like, I, I know that's really big now, and the Washington Post even even has like a peeps diorama contest. But I have not seen any reference to peeps dioramas contest that predates my peeps diorama contest so i've been doing this for many years and uh there was a woman in um, boulder and who got evicted from her apartment for for putting a peeps display she made this wreath with peeps 
and she put this Peeps display on her door at her apartment. And somebody complained or something, or they might have just been wanting to get rid of her, so they sent her this <laughs> eviction notice, and they said that she, they circled the part of the lease that said you can't put um, food or trash in public spaces. And so it sounded like they were just trying to get, get rid of yeah. her and give her a hassle. So she got this lawyer uh, who to, to to help defend her in this case, and he wanted to bring in Peeps as um, art to say this wasn't trash, this was an art project. And so I was going to testify. Um, he had a couple art teachers, too, and he wanted to testify as to the artness of Peeps. Mm-hmm. But after the first couple of witnesses talking about art, uh, he came out and talked to me in um, – outside the courtroom and he's like oh he's like okay they're they're sick of hearing about peeps as art i want to talk about peeps what happens to peeps over time do they spoil do they rot do they get bugs and so i i got on the stand and he asked me he's like so you you collect peeps and you have collections of peeps for many years in your garage is that correct (laughs) and the prosecuting attorney objects he's like what is the relevance of this and he was like the relevance is we want to talk about what happens to peeps over time and so so i got to answer the question i was like they don't you know i've never seen bugs on them they don't get ants they really just kind of get chewy and then they just get hard and they just be kind of become plastic (laughs) which is kind of funny that we eat those things but you know it's like people have that twinkie for for that's it years or whatever oh and so in the cross-examination the prosecuting attorney says so you have a collection of peeps for many years in your garage, is that correct? <laughs> like, he asked me the same question that he objected to, which which was hilarious. So, yeah, I, I became a peeps expert by um, administrating a peeps diorama contest for well, many years. I am positive that if I go look in the TASA legal directory for experts, uh, there will be nobody but you listed as an expert on peeps. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guarantee that's true. Oh, um, and also, you know, this this story got picked up by Stephen Colbert. He actually did two different pieces about this story. So if you if you search on um, Colbert, uh huh, you you can find this oh. story. It's it's really well done. He talks to the lady and um, uh, and actually he actually sent her because she was so gracious to be on his show. Um, he actually sent her like a pallet of peeps. Oh. And so she gave me she she gave me some, and you know in the movie the John Benet Tricycle movie I have that microwave popcorn. Yes. So I have so I put a label on it so I would remember. It said be a Ramsey corn do not eat. Right. So I have these these peeps that were from the Colbert show, and I says Colbert peeps do not eat. eat. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. So I have lots of other peeps. I got to make sure I know that yeah. this, these are the the ones that are from the Colbert show. You don't want to eat Stephen Colbert's peeps. <laughs> no, I would do the same thing. I'd put a post-it on it. Yeah, I I would do that. So now, when are we going? Now everybody can see Jean Benet's tricycle because it's out on digital now. Um, they can Google it. They can see it on various platforms, and it is so worth seeing. But what I want to know now. Andrew, is when are we going to see a documentary about you? Because you are so fascinating and so eclectic. I would love to see a documentary just on you and your collections. I've thought about that, and I was able to put it in this movie. A little bit. You know, I I was part in this movie. But the question is, in a documentary, like, what's the arc? What's the story arc in a documentary about me? Like, unless something happens where, like, I die in a horrible wreck or I, you know, I eat poison peeps or, you know, like, if there, if there's no story arc, like, my arc is still going, right? I'm still just doing fun, weird yeah. stuff. So, so that's, I'm not sure what the documentary Your arc is, the arc is fun. That's your arc. Fun. <laughs> Various yeah. ways to have fun creative ways to have fun through quote-unquote art, through art exhibitions, um, through melding your collections with artwork and photography. Um, you, your photograph that you did, your, I, I assume you took that picture, that beautiful 
Eggleston-style picture of the tricycle. Yeah, I did. I mean, that day, you know, meld that with your collectibles. You know, do a, a photo and live, live action. Um, I think that would be so interesting. It would, I think it would be awesome. I just, I was just curious, like what the, what the angle. There is, you go. You know? Fun. <laughs> it's fun. The angle is fun. I am actually working on a documentary about an, a fellow collector. Um, I got asked to do so. Also in Boulder, um, at the Boulder Library, they have a really nice uh, gallery, and I've done some some um, short time exhibition work with them, uh, and. There's a guy who worked at the Boulder Library for over 30, 30 or 35 years, and he is a, an avid collector and a, a lifelong resident of Boulder, and he collects, I think, seven times more stuff than I do. Oh, my God. <laughs> so they asked me if I wanted to curate an exhibition of his collections, and I said, I would love to. This would be amazing, but he's got so much, you know, kind of, he, the guy himself is so interesting it's not just about the stuff so i wanted to have some kind of film angle to it and he's also a filmmaker and he scored uh, music for films and things so i I definitely want to have a video aspect so i'm working on um raising funds to make a feature documentary about him well when you get that thing made i want you back on my show to talk about that film that would be great you're gonna you're gonna love this guy he's uh, he's uh, as wacky or wackier than me (laughs) Oh, Andrew, unfortunately, we're all out of time. This has been so much fun talking with you. Oh, great to talk to you. And I can't wait till we do it again. Yeah, for sure. I will keep in touch with the next wacky project that I do. <laughs> oh, I, trust me. I like your wacky projects. I, I am now a fan of your wacky projects, Andrew. Awesome. <laughs> so, oh, Andrew... Again, everybody can, can find John Bonet's Tricycle on all the digital platforms, the usual digital suspects, and it's fun. You know, we need some fun. So, oh, Andrew, thank you, thank you so much. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you. And we'll chat again soon, I'm sure. I'm sure we will. <laughs> Thanks, Andrew. Okay, bye. Bye-bye. And that was Andrew Novick. Writer, director, production designer, and all-around collector, uh, Jean Benet's Tricycle. That is all the time we have today. Again, Sextortion, The Hidden Pandemic, Sextortion. Um, look for it online to follow along as to what's happening with distribution and where you can see it. It is a powerhouse, compelling film that every parent needs to see. Um, next week... We're going to talk with the director of Who Are You People? Yeah, this sounds like a film made just for me. Who are you people? Um, So, until then, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. (laughs) 